Last week we looked at Psalm 80, and that psalm pointed us to the promises that God had made to Israel that someday there would be one who would sit in righteousness and justice upon the, the throne of David. That was the promised Messiah. And we saw that psalm pointed that. Well, with the Christmas season upon us, I decided this morning that we'd look at a passage that, that speaks directly to this one that was promised. This one that would sit on the throne of David by the, the will of the Lord. I thought we'd focus on him because we know this one by a name. We know him by the name Jesus. After all, the one who will sit on the throne of, uh, of, of David is the one who was born on that manger the children talked about this morning. We, we know of his name because we celebrate the, the event of his birth. We celebrate it annually when we come to this season. As you can see on the screen, we're going to turn to the, the first five verses in the, the 11th chapter of Isaiah this morning. Our, our psalm last week, if you recall, if you were here, it was prompted, the, the psalm by the fact that the Assyrian Empire had attacked the, the nation of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, when they were divided between Israel and Judah. The, the Assyrian Empire had attacked and oppressed that nation for quite some time, and that called forth that psalm. Well, it might be helpful to realize that the prophet Isaiah, who's writing our passage this morning, he also wrote in that same time period. He, he wrote, and he's just, in fact, in the passage right before the one we're looking at this morning, described how God is going to bring a sudden destruction upon the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the, the greatest empire of the world at that time. They were to be feared, and yet God had promised Isaiah had prophesied that Assyria is going to be swiftly and suddenly destroyed, it, leaving behind nothing but, the way he described it, nothing but metaphorical stumps. Where the, the forest of her pride had grown, there'd be nothing but stumps la left. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving down um, 96 toward the, the western side of the state, and if you haven't driven there recently, uh, a tornado went through the, a short area close to Fowlerville, and there's a number of places where the trees are broken off almost uniformly at 15 feet high. It's just amazing to look at these trees, just trunk after trunk after trunk. Well, here the idea is it's not going to be 15 feet high, it's just going to be lowly stumps. If the picture Isaiah is given, this empire is going to be destroyed. And it's important to have this idea of all these stumps laying out in mind as we come to our passage because Isaiah brings out this image in, in our verses as well, where Assyria is going to be reduced to stumps. He says, from this one little stump of Israel that Assyria has destroyed, a shoot is going to rise. Something's going to grow. That shoot is the child whose birth we celebrate at this season, the baby Jesus. His birth is worth celebrating, yet his birth is only the first of two comings. He is coming again. He came once when he was born in the manger, but he's coming again. And as we'll see this morning in Isaiah, when he comes again, he will come as king. That's why my challenge for all of us this morning is that we should yearn for the coming of the king as we celebrate the coming of the child. We gather around with families this season. We gather around, we celebrate the, the coming of the child Next Sunday on our candlelight service in the evening, 
We will celebrate on Christmas Eve by reading the, the record of the coming of the child in Luke chapter 2. This is the season we celebrate the coming of the child, but we should yearn for the coming of the king as we celebrate the coming of the child. Let's read our verses this morning from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, looking at the first five verses. Remember that image of a stump. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist." We should yearn for the coming of the king as we celebrate the coming of the child. This morning, what I want us to do is, is, is contemplate this king who is coming. Let's consider him. There, in the first two verses, we, we learn about his nature, the, the nature of the coming king. One, one thing that I found shocking in the last few years is, is the number of leaders that have lost their positions because things have been discovered that show the leaders have not presented themselves as they really are. They've misrepresented themselves. We've seen this in corporate leaders. We've seen it in governmental leaders. We've seen it in academic leaders. It, this is an issue that has run across all aspects of our culture. People have claimed to have degrees and experiences that they, they simply did not have. We've, we've had people claim to be African-American or American Indian without being so. I, I could even name names, but we'd probably run into all kinds of political things if we start doing that because there's political issues attached, it seems like, to all of these. The point is we, we live among people who misrepresent themselves. Well, nothing like that will happen with the coming king. He will not misrepresent himself. Our scripture makes clear that he will not need to because his nature will be exactly what's needed to qualify him to be the king that's declared. First, the coming king is from the line of David. He is from the line of David. Verse 1 here says that, that this one that will spring from the stem of, it will come from the stem of Jesse. Jesse if you, you don't recall your Old Testament history, Jesse is the father of David. And, and don't feel bad, I had to verify that myself this week. I was trying, was pretty sure, but I had to look it up. So, Jesse is the father of David. David was known as a man after God's own heart. God made a covenant with David. God said, David, there will be someone from your line that will sit upon the throne forever. Well, Christmas is nearly upon us. And we celebrate this birth, this birth of Jesus, but, but we're downstream of that birth. We're far downstream of that birth. So we can see how that birth, the, the baby that was born in that manger, how that perfectly fits in to the promise here that God gave through Isaiah. By the time Jesus was born, Israel had been ruled by foreign powers for nearly 600 years. I don't think as Americans we can even really grasp 600 years. You know, we count 200 years of history and we think our nation's been here forever. Nothing, did history begin before America was founded? 
I'm not sure. Most of us, that's as far back as we think. Well, 600 years have gone by where Israel did not have a king. They've been ruled by someone else. From all practical purposes, the throne of David was non-existent by the time the baby was born. It would certainly appear by that time that the stump of Jesse was dead. That David's dynasty was defunct. And yet, Isaiah had predicted 600 years earlier, or even more actually, he had predicted that from the stem of Jesse, a shoot would spring up. Several commentators suggest that, that God pointed to Jesse there in verse 1 rather than David to emphasize that David, the, the great king of, of Israel that they all hearken back to, David began with very humble beginnings. In, in fact, the dynasty began in a very small town of Bethlehem. When David was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, David was the youngest son of a seemingly insignificant family in a tiny little speck of a town. Now in similar fashion, God is promising to raise up another king, a king from the same line with similar humble beginnings. Picture the manger in your eyes. Humble beginnings. Remember, the question was asked, what good can, thing can come from Nazareth? It's a, a nothing town, of course. He was born in a smaller town of Bethlehem. Last year, as we entered the Christmas season, we looked at the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1. You can look at that sermon online if you wish. It's still out there. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins by tracing the lineage of Jesus back to David and Jesse. God had promised that he would give David an eternal dynasty. Jesus is from David's line. At the same time, Jesus is not on the throne of Israel today, is he? We know that Israel's ruled by a prime minister, or at least governed by a prime minister. They have a parliament. There is no king on the throne of Israel today. The prime minister makes no claim to being the king of Israel. Israel's awaiting this prophecy's fulfillment. The coming king is from the line of David. The shoot from the, the stem of Jesse has sprung, but we still await his coming as a king. Verse 2, we see not only that he'll come from the line of David, his nature will also be one that is spiritually empowered. He will be qualified because the coming king is spiritually empowered. His, king, his power will not be that of natural ability. It will be spiritually supplied. He will have the Spirit of God resting on him. In, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came with a special power to the kings of Israel, a special ministry that they gave to the chosen rulers of God's chosen nation. We, we sometimes will call this the theocratic anointing. The, the Spirit came upon the, the kings of Israel. That's what was removed from Saul when Saul was no longer to be king and David was anointed as his replacement for Samuel chapter 16. The special anointing it, from the Spirit, it enabled that person to rule well. Isaiah prophesied the Messiah will have this anointing. The chosen one, this king, will have this anointing so that he's perfectly empowered to rule from David's throne. Again, 
We sit here this morning in a privileged position. We can look back in history and see the fulfillment of this prophecy. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we have a record of this special anointing coming upon Jesus. We read, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was the theocratic anointing on, on Jesus. Notice in, in verse 2 here of Isaiah, what this ministry will bring, this anointing, what the Spirit provides, this special empowerment that was given to all the kings of Israel. They all got it some degree, but this king will have it fully. He is the perfect, sinless, coming king, the Messiah of God. First, we, we have that there will be wisdom and understanding. These are special attributes necessary for, for ruling, wisdom, is that which is dry from God and gives the ability to make right decisions at the right time. Decisions that need to be made only and can only be made if understanding is complete. But this king will have the ability to understand. He'll have the ability to see things as they truly are. Something only God can do, but God gives this one. Second, he will have counsel and strength. These describe practical abilities that, that come because of this wisdom and understanding. He will be able to create wise plans and, and choose the right means to execute those plans. Furthermore, he'll have all the strength, the power that's needed to, to make sure that those plans are carried through to completion. The perfect ruler. Third, the Messiah, this one sitting on the throne, will have knowledge and fear. These point to spiritual qualities. Qualities that will govern his reign. Solomon, the, the wisest king to ever live. The, Solomon was the direct son of, of David, the wisest king to ever live. He says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, the Messiah that comes, he will conduct his rule with perfect fear of the Lord. Perfect knowledge. In other words, he will have a perfect relationship with the Lord God. Isaiah saw how the Messiah here would be spiritually empowered for his rule. In fact, Jesus has already been prepared. The Spirit has already anointed him. He's prepared to be the perfect ruler. He is perfect with his nature for the job of being king. Now, from our perspective, this is probably <coughs> something that, that we can only imagine, and even then somewhat we struggle, because we have never seen a perfect ruler We've seen in history some good rulers at times, but every ruler has aspects that were not good. Even David, the, the king that was called to be the man after God's own heart, was far from a perfect ruler. This David had the special anointing of, of the Spirit. He was described as that man after God's own heart, and yet we know that he fell into sin by adultery and murder, all in the midst of ruling well overall. We have never experienced a perfect king. But one is coming. A perfect ruler is coming. He's already been prepared. Knowing this should cause us to, to yearn for his reign, even as we consider the, the governance of our country and we, 
sometimes despair over the leadership of our country, we should really be moved to yearn for the coming of the perfect one. As we celebrate the birth of that one this season, we should yearn for his coming, knowing that he is prepared by nature to rule perfectly. We should yearn for the coming of the king as we celebrate the coming of the child. In the first two verses of Isaiah here, we've seen the nature of the coming king. In the next three, we see his character, the character of the coming king. We've seen his nature, but what will his character look like? What kind of a king will he be in character? Verses 3 through 5 give three descriptions of, of his character. Each one that, that sets him completely apart from any other king. One, the, the coming king will delight in God. He will delight in God. Verse 3 says he will delight in the fear of the Lord. One commentator notes that phrase, he will delight, and so that phrase demonstrates that his whole capacity for delight will be absorbed in the Lord. We all delight in a number of things. I delighted, I mentioned this morning that the lines were up by enough at halftime that I could go to bed and hope I'd wake up happy in the morning. I delighted even more when I woke up after a little trepidation looking and saw, hey, they did win. Yay. We delight in all kinds of things, but here is one who's nothing can distract him from his delight in carrying out the will of God. There will be no self-motivation, no self-promotion, no ego furthering. He will be committed totally to the perfect will of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, as Moses was giving the law of, to the nation of Israel, as Israel was being set up really as a brand new country, a brand new nation, they, they were given a law, God gave them the law because they were his chosen nation. And in that law, Moses gave these instructions to the future kings. He said, now it shall come about when he, that's the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. In other words, he should make his own little copy of, of the, the law for the land. Moses says, he, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Moses gave these instructions so that uh, any king that sat on the throne there in Israel would continually increase in his desire to follow God. As God had laid out in the Mosaic Law, here's what I expect of you as my nation. The idea was that the king would increase in his delight in the law of God as he studied it more and more. And he would seek to do the will of God. Of course, if you know Israel's history at all, you know that did not happen. That did not happen, at least not consistently. In fact, we got to the point where things were so bad in the nation that, that the very law of Moses that was supposed to be copied by the king was essentially lost entirely until one copy was found one day when they were cleaning out the temple and they found one stored in a back cabinet. 
Clearly, at that point in time, the kings were not dwelling on the law daily and had not for generations by that point because they didn't even know it existed anymore. Yet the Messiah will be completely different. His total delight will be in the fear of the Lord. In fact, John makes a point of emphasizing in, in his gospel when he tells us about the life that Jesus read. John makes the point over and over in the gospel of telling us that Jesus did nothing from his own initiative. Everything he did was so that he could do the will of his Father. He followed the will of his Father completely even when the will of his Father took him to the cross to give his life. Even as he was heading to the cross, his attitude was expressed, not my will, but yours be done. Isaiah assures us that this will continue when he returns. When he, known as the Messiah in the Old Testament, when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, the coming king will delight in God, doing God's will. That's the first characteristic. He will delight in God. The second characteristic is that he will love righteousness. The coming king will love righteousness. The Messiah, the, the, the coming king, he will rule in perfect righteousness because he will love righteousness. It will be, as verse 5 says, the belt about his loins. All his judgments will be just because he desires righteousness. Again, we, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of this in the life of Jesus. The, the Gospels are clear that Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. There was no deceit found in him so that the authorities could, could bring a, an accusation against him. They couldn't find anything, so what did they have to do? They had to find wicked men that would drum up false accusations. They had to drum up false charges so that they could crucify him. Now, we know Jesus did not rule at his first coming, but he did demonstrate that he loved righteousness. He's demonstrated his perfect and complete love for it. So we can have confidence when he comes to rule, he will rule in complete righteousness. Now, allow me to take a moment to note what the Bible tells us an absolute rule of righteousness will look like. When, when Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin at his trial during his, his first appearance here, during his life, before he went to the cross, he told the Sanhedrin, they, that's the rulers of Israel at the time, the, the, the religious authorities, if you would, because they were ruled ultimately by Rome from government, but the religious rulers, he told them that he would be seated at the right hand of God in the position of power and authority. The Apostle Paul tells us in, in 2 Timothy 4.1 that Jesus from, will be the one who judges the living and the dead. Remember, he's going to rule in righteousness. His judgments are going to be based absolutely on righteousness. Well, the Apostle John describes that final righteous judgment for sinners. He does so in chapter 20 of Revelation, verses 11 through 15. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. That's Jesus. Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
in the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The king will judge when he comes, and he will judge based on righteousness, perfect, absolute righteousness. He will judge all the people who come before him by their deeds based upon righteousness alone. The problem is, every one of the people that stands before him has unrighteous deeds. None are righteous. Not when you use an absolute standard righteousness. Sins have been committed. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us stand up to that level of righteousness required. And because of those righteous deeds, each person standing before the righteous king will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's the punishment that's required. You know, we at times have punishments that are mandatory. A judge has a mandatory sentence that must be given out because of the nature of the crime. The nature of the crime for unrighteousness is eternity in the lake of fire. That's what pure righteousness requires. Everyone whose name is not written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. How can someone have his name written, or her name for that matter, written in the book of life? Well, that question is not answered in the, the verses I read, but the rest of the New Testament tells us. There's other parts that make it clear. In fact, really to have your name written in the book of life is why Jesus came the first time. Why he was born at Christmas. The only way to have someone's name written in the book of life is to accept that Jesus died for your sins. That when he went to the cross, he suffered the death that sinners deserve, even though he was sinless himself. That he died in your place. The book of life is simply a book that contains the names of every person who accepted Jesus as Savior. Every person who believed that he died specifically for them, and he is now their rightful king. So, if you are before Jesus, and he's going to judge, he's going to judge based on deeds. He's either going to look at your deeds, or if your name's in the book of life, he looks at his own deeds. He knows what his deeds were. He died on the cross to pay the penalty. If your name's in the book of life, then Jesus will judge you as righteous, because his deeds were righteous. But if your name's not there, he'll look at your unrighteous deeds and judge you. Accepting Jesus as Savior means accepting that he died for you. Not that he was born in the manger, believing that he came at Christmas. Yep, I believe in Jesus. He was born. I celebrate him every year at Christmas. I give presents and eat a lot of food with my family. No. Accepting Jesus as Savior means believing he died in your place. He died for your sins. A critical question asked this morning, as we think about yearning for the coming king, is whether you're ready for him to come and judge. Are you, are you ready for him to come and judge you? Have you accepted Jesus as Savior? If not, or if you're not sure, please talk to me today. Talk to me before you leave. Send me an email this week. There's my email address. 
I would love to spend time explaining how Jesus the righteous one has done what's required so that you can avoid the lake of fire. The coming king will love righteousness. It's his character. It gives us hope if we have our name in the book of life. It should give us fear if we do not. Second aspect of his character is that he will love righteousness. Three, the coming king will exude power. He will exude power. Verse four, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. All God had to do was speak and the world was created. All the coming king needs to do is speak once more and his thoughts will become reality. He exudes power by the words of his mouth. Think about this. When Jesus was born here in the manger, when he was born as a baby, his power was veiled by his humanity. He was fully God. He had the power to speak and make things happen. But he, it was veiled with his, humi his humanity. He was a helpless baby that needed his mother to take care of for him. He looked like a normal man as he lived. Of course, there were brief glimpses of, of this power that he had. There were times where Jesus did things like heal the sick. He even raised the dead from back to life simply by speaking. Remember, he stood outside Lazarus' tomb and just said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out of the tomb. He spoke words, hush, be still. In a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, suddenly no longer existed. So we saw brief glimpses of it. The soldiers came to arrest him and and they said they were looking for Jesus, and all he had to say was, I am. And they were blown to the ground. And Jesus let him get back up and arrest him. He had the ability to exude power with his words, but he did not use it to rule at his first coming. That will change when he comes again. Revelation chapter 19 gives us the, the fullest picture of our king's return. John writes, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean or were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When the king comes, his power will exude from him. The only power he needs to defeat all of his enemies, to establish his kingdom and to rule it in righteousness, is the power of his word. The coming king will exude power. He will delight in God. He will love righteousness and power. These are the, the character of our coming king. We should yearn for the coming of our king as we celebrate the coming of the child. 
Think about the nature of the king. Think about the character of the king. I don't know what plans you have to celebrate his birth with your family over the next couple of weeks. I, I urge you, though, during those times of celebration, I urge you to include in your plans some time of yearning for the, his coming as a king. We should yearn for the coming of the king as we celebrate the coming of the child. Father, we look forward to the coming of our king. We yearn for him to come in righteousness. Father, even as we come to this time of year and we celebrate his birth, may we be mindful that he came so that he could die. He rose victorious from the grave, having conquered sin and death. And he is coming again. So, Father, may we contemplate the fact that when he comes again, we all will stand before him in judgment. The only hope we have is to know him as Savior, to have accepted his death on our behalf. If there's anyone here today, Father, that does not know Jesus as Savior, has never accepted his sacrifice for their own sins, Father, may today be the day that you draw them to yourself, that you show them their desperate need because the righteous king is coming. Father, for all of us who claim the name of Jesus, who know him as Savior, may our hearts beat stronger today as we yearn for his return. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen.